Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh... Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. It's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode number 372 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 17 Glitches. Good afternoon. I'm Jim McKay speaking to you live at this moment from ABC headquarters just outside the Olympic Village in Munich, West Germany. The peace of what is what have been called the Serene Olympics was shattered just before dawn this morning about five o'clock when Arab terrorists armed with submachine guns, faces blackened, a couple of them disguised as guards or as uh, trash men in the Olympic Village, climbed the fence, went to the headquarters of the Israeli team and immediately killed one man, Moshe Weinberg, a coach, two shots in the head. These guerrillas are from one of the very extreme left-wing groups, a group called Black September. This is building number 31, and we're moving in now on the windows, behind which, at this moment, eight or nine terrified living human beings are being held prisoner. We are told that there are men with guns beginning to train those guns on the rooms where the two heads were sticking out a moment ago of the Arab guerrilla lookouts. I don't... I'm not sure these men have guns or or cameras. That's a gun, all right. One man with binoculars, another with a gun. Whether they have a line of fire, whether they'll have to sneak up to the corner. This is happening now, if you can possibly believe that, at the games of the 20th Olympiad. The latest word we get from the airport is that, quote, all hell is broken loose out there, that there is still shooting going on, that there is a report of a burning helicopter. When I was a kid, my father used to say, our greatest hopes and our worst fears are Mm. seldom realized. Our worst fears have been realized tonight. They've now said that there were 11 hostages. Two were killed in their rooms yesterday morning. Nine were killed at the airport tonight. They're all gone. In 1972, tectonic shifts were taking place both inside and beyond the space community's bubble of life. Vietnam, the war that had shadowed many astronauts' career, was finally winding down, and it looked as though the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese were going to win. At home, Students, women, and minorities had grown militant, and voices of rage were heard throughout the land. President Nixon devalued the dollar, froze wages and prices. But in spite of this, 
and his enemies in the press, he was overwhelmingly re-elected. On the other side of the world, terrorists attacked the Munich Olympic Games and murdered a number of Israeli athletes while a stunned world watched on television. U.S. intelligence services soon picked up information that the bloodthirsty group known as Black September might be planning something even more bizarre, a strike at Apollo 17. Charlie Buckley, head of security at the Cape, quietly escalated his protection procedures, but the crew wasn't told anything at the time. Headquarters felt they had enough on their minds without worrying about terrorist threats. By the end of the summer of 72, Deke Slayton and Charlie Buckley replaced the door to the astronaut crew quarters with a bulletproof door that had an interior that was a slab of hardened steel. At this point, Deke and Charlie Buckley felt the terrorism threat had grown to a point where they had to tell the crew about Black September. Inside the crew quarters, they explained the situation was being taken very seriously, but also was being kept very quiet. The terrorists wanted headlines, and NASA wasn't going to give them any. Deke went on to explain that the security situation was under control here at the Cape, but the security experts had concluded that Black September might not try for a heavily protected astronaut or the Saturn at all, but instead might go after the most vulnerable targets, the astronauts' children. With the children as hostages, the terrorist would hold some pretty powerful leverage. When Barbara Cernan and Jan Evans were informed, they were both shocked and afraid. Ron and Jean were furious at the idea of faceless terrorists posing a threat to their families while they were on the moon, where they would be helpless. But they didn't know who these terrorists were, so they couldn't just grab a weapon and try to go out and find them. Besides, there were plenty of trained police officers already doing that job. The security chiefs proposed that teams of their men be allowed to park outside the astronauts' homes in Houston 24 hours a day and for plainclothes officers to take their children to school. The astronauts approved the stakeouts, but not right in front of their doors. So until they got back from the moon, unmarked cars with quiet, armed men inside parked just down the way, watching their houses. But Ron and Jean refused to further disrupt their children's lives by forcing them to live within a police cordon. They were normal kids, at least as normal as kids could be who had fathers going to the moon. And they wanted them to stay that way. So the children would continue to ride the school bus. As a compromise, when their children went to school each day, one of those unmarked police cars drove right behind the bus, and some of the children's classes were watched over by well-dressed, polite, and very capable federal agents. It was amazing that the press never figured out this was going on. All right, let's move on. 
I don't usually do this, but since it is the final moon mission, I decided to spend a little time on the construction and testing of Apollo 17. Believe it or not, flight hardware for Apollo 17 began arriving at the Kennedy Space Center in October 1970, over two years before liftoff. This was while Apollo 14 was undergoing checkout in the Vehicle Assembly Building. The command and service module arrived at Kennedy Space Center in late March 1972, and it was placed in the altitude chamber for systems tests and unmanned and manned chamber runs. During these runs, the chamber air was pumped out to simulate the vacuum of space in order to test spacecraft systems and astronauts' life support. The lunar module arrived at the Kennedy Space Center in June, and its two stages were moved into an altitude chamber after an initial receiving inspection. It too was given a series of system tests and unmanned and manned chamber runs. The prime and backup crews participated in the chamber runs on both the lunar module and the command and service module. In July, the lunar module and the command and service module were removed from the chambers. After installing the landing gear on the lunar module and the service propulsion system nozzle on the command and service module, the lunar module was encapsulated in the spacecraft lunar module adapter and the command and service module was mated to the spacecraft lunar module adapter. The lunar roving vehicle arrived at the Kennedy Space Center on June 2nd. Following a series of tests, which included a mission simulation on August 9th and a deployment demonstration on August 10th, the lunar roving vehicle was flight installed in the lunar module's descent stage on August 13th. On August 24th, the assembled spacecraft was moved to the vehicle assembly building where it was mated to the launch vehicle. Erection of the Saturn V launch vehicle's three stages and instrument unit on Mobile Launcher 3 in the Vehicle Assembly Building's High Bay 3 began on May 15th and was completed on June 27th. Tests were conducted on individual systems on each of the stages and on the overall launch vehicle before the spacecraft was erected atop the vehicle. Rollout of the space vehicle from the Vehicle Assembly Building to Pad A at Kennedy Space Center's Launch Complex 39 was accomplished on August 28th. That was about 14 weeks before launch day. As a side note, processing and erection of the Skylab 1 and Skylab 2 launch vehicles was underway in the Vehicle Assembly Building while preparations were made for moving Apollo 17 to the pad, giving the Kennedy Space Center three Saturn space vehicles in flow for the first time since the peak of Apollo activity in 1969. After the move to the pad, the spacecraft and launch vehicle were electrically mated and the first overall test, plugs in, was conducted on October 11th. The plugs-in test verified the compatibility of the space vehicle systems, ground support equipment, and off-site support facilities by demonstrating the ability of the systems to proceed through a simulated countdown, launch, and flight. 
The Space Vehicle Flight Readiness Test was conducted from October 18th to the 20th. Both the prime and backup crews participated in portions of the test, which is a final overall test of the space vehicle systems and ground support equipment when all systems are as near as possible to launch configuration. After hypergolic fuels were loaded aboard the space vehicle and the launch vehicle, first stage fuel, RP-1, was brought aboard. The final major tests of the space vehicle began. This was the countdown demonstration test, a dress rehearsal for the final countdown to launch. The countdown demonstration test for Apollo 17 was divided into a wet and a dry portion. During the first, or wet, portion, the entire countdown, including propellant loading, was carried out down to 8.9 seconds, the time for ignition sequence start. At the completion of the wet countdown demonstration test, the cryogenic propellants, which were liquid oxygen and liquid hydrogen, were offloaded and the final portion of the countdown was rerun, this time simulating the fueling and with the prime astronaut crew participating as they would on launch day. Because of the complexity involved in the checkout of the Apollo Saturn V configuration, the launch teams made use of extensive automation in their checkout. Automation was one of the major differences in checkout used in Apollo compared to the procedures used in earlier Mercury and Gemini programs. Computer, data display equipment, and digital data techniques were used throughout the automatic checkout from the time the launch vehicle was erected in the vehicle assembly building throughout liftoff. A similar but separate computer operation called ACE which stands for Acceptance Checkout Equipment, was used to verify the flight readiness of the spacecraft. Spacecraft checkout was controlled from separate rooms in the... Interestingly, while all this testing was going on, Cernan had two health scares that almost took him off the flight crew. First, he had a prostate infection. And then... He injured his leg in a softball game at the Cape. The injury to his leg was bad enough that he had to use crutches. But in both instances, a trusted flight surgeon treated him and kept it as quiet as possible. Even though Deke Slayton was very suspicious and Cernan knew he would be pulled from the flight if his leg did not heal. But Fortunately, it did, mostly. Apollo 17 would mark the 12th Saturn V launch from Kennedy Space Center and the 11th from Complex 39 Pad A. Remember, Apollo 10 was launched from Pad B. There was at least one thing that made the Apollo 17 launch unique. It would be a night launch. This was because it would be impossible to land on the moon in darkness, and on the other hand, if the sun was too high, its bright light would wash out the lunar surface below during landing. Therefore, it was determined that Apollo 17 must leave Earth after dark in order to arrive over the landing area days later 
when the lunar morning sun at just the proper angle to cast the stark shadows Cernan and Schmidt needed to outline the surface details. This caused some of the more conservative managers to start worrying all over again. Launching at night would be dangerous, they said, even more so than in the daylight. A government and industry team of about 600 would conduct the final countdown, 500 of them in the firing room, number one, in launch control center, and 100 in the spacecraft control rooms in the manned spacecraft operations building. The firing room team was backed up by more than 5,000 people who were directly involved in launch operations at the Kennedy Space Center from the time the vehicle and the spacecraft stages arrived at the center until the launch was complete. The Apollo 17 pre-count activities would start at T-6 days. The final countdown would begin at T-28 hours when the flight batteries were installed in the three stages and instrument unit of the launch vehicle. At the T-9 hour mark, a built-in hold of 9 hours and 53 minutes was planned to meet contingencies and provide a rest period for the launch crew. A one-hour built-in hold was scheduled at T-3 hours 30 minutes. Finally, with all that said, we have reached launch day, which was beautifully described in Gene Cernan's book. On Wednesday, December 6, 1972, villages of tents and campers sprouted like daylilies along Highway US-1 and the causeways around the Cape, and the inhabitants bask in the 80-degree Florida winter afternoon. The schoolchildren of Titusville were released early from classes to stake out prime viewing spots for their families. By sundown, about 700,000 people had gathered for the last launch of an Apollo moon mission, coming from as far away as England and Australia to watch the spectacle. Americans of all walks of life came together in a common adventure, a Pittsburgh steel worker's kids playing in the surf with the dog of a California hippie couple while the parents toasted Apollo 17 with drinks and ate potato salad from the cooler in a VW van, everybody joking with the police officers and waving to passing limousines. Some listened to rock music and others sang hymns. Every bus within a 250-mile radius had been rented and hauled in more spectators by the hour, swelling the population of the instant city. It wasn't known at the time, but the liftoff of Apollo 17 was one of the early harbingers that a tired and torn America was starting to knit itself back together. Cash registers chimed all over Bavard County as the throng of excited spectators rubbed shoulders with early Christmas shoppers. Chambers of Commerce types hoped the activity indicated the future of a new post-Apollo community when tourism, retirees, and diversified industry would replace the jobs lost by the ending of the moon program. 
two communist Chinese journalists joined the largest press corps to ever cover a launch. A well-known governor, George Wallace of Alabama, crippled by a gunman during his presidential campaign, would be seated in the VIP grandstand near a little-known governor, Jimmy Carter of Georgia. They were among the 42,000 people who actually held invitations, and Cernan had personally invited more than 50, including not only his mother and sister, but celebrities and friends such as Skip and Rye, Baldy, John Wayne, Connie Stevens, Bob Hope, Don Rickles, Dinah Shore, Johnny Carson, Henry Mancini, and Eva Gabor. Not only were they invited, but they came, joining the vigil for this once-in-a-lifetime event, this home run in the last inning of a Space World Series, the final touchdown in a celestial Super Bowl. As night fell, high rollers motored in from luxury yachts anchored offshore to munch roast pig and shrimp beneath a big green and white tent that sheltered the time-incorporated luau from a passing shower. Only two weeks before, the publishing company had closed Life magazine, severing the link with the astronauts who had seen their pictures spread on those glossy pages over the years and who had collected precious paychecks in return. Dominating the festivities from over there at Pad 39A, standing proud and majestic against the stage of orange scaffolding at the edge of the Atlantic Ocean, was the Saturn V, whitewashed by 74 big xenon spotlights, a silvery needle gleaming in the night. Sheets of ice slid from her sides as workers pumped in freezing fuel and she owned the night. The spectators glanced over frequently to admire her sleek lines and keep a sharp eye peeled as if she might sneak away unseen. Far out beyond the bright lights, the steel drum music and tables laden with shrimp and steak, Charlie Buckley's security team were hard at their stealthy work. Helicopters circled the area, military patrols fanned through the swamps, and undercover cops worked the civilian areas. Security had never been as tight at the Cape, and although the crew seldom saw their guardians, they watched their every move. Black September was no joke. Due to the late hour of their liftoff, the crew was not roused on launch day until noon. Lou Hartzell had the usual steak and eggs waiting for them. Here's how Ron Evans described it. We're just going to start the day of the launch. Now you get ready to go on that particular day. They take you in and you have a last breakfast. It's always, <laughs> you know, steak and eggs. <laughs> no matter what time of the day, you get going. So you finish eating. After a private mass with D. O'Hara and Father Cargill, who by now considered himself to be an astronaut because he spent so much time with them. The crew all caught up on final briefings while sipping coffee and horsing around. 
Everything unfolded at a rather leisurely pace in comparison with the rush of a morning mission. The launch window was between 9.53 p.m. and 1.31 a.m. Florida time, and those times were firm, but the weather report was a little iffy. After the sunny temperatures of the previous afternoon, a cold front had stalked in from the west and a layer of gray clouds were high above the Cape, threatening to spread a curtain of thunderstorms across the launch path. The weather people said they had a better than 50% chance of getting away on time. The Boeing workers were back on the job after a last-minute settlement of dispute over wages, which meant there would be no picket lines at the spaceport tonight. But that would not have stopped them anyway. A computer failure in the firing room had forced everyone to shift to an alternate system, but did not disrupt the countdown. And then uh, you go down to a suit room, what we call uh, the suit-up room, and then you get into your spacesuit. And as you get into the spacesuit, you know, you want to check it out, make sure it's going to work, so they pump it up, and you know, and you start being a beetle uh, in, in, inside the spacesuit to check it, make sure it's going to hold pressure. And then everything gets out, checked out all right, and then they plug in a little uh, carrier that supplies the oxygen. Cernan's trusted flight surgeon, Chuck LaPinta, and he smiled at each other as Gene squeezed his aching behind and sore leg into his spacesuit. When asked how he felt, Gene lied a little and said, No biggies. Ron smoked the last cigarette he would have for almost two weeks. His memory must have haunted him because one of the first things he would do aboard the recovery ship was bum a cigarette from a sailor. Gene took a moment when they were alone to remind Jack and Ron, who had no idea what they were in for, to soak up the experience they were about to have, saying, quote, We're going to shake, rattle, and roll once the flight begins. Just hang in there and do what you've trained to do. But I want you to enjoy this. Enjoy every second before it's gone. This will be one of the most breathtaking experiences you've ever had, and we won't be back this way again. End quote. Of course, they didn't know how to respond, but Gene remembered when Tom Stafford had tried to explain the thrill of a Jiminy reentry, and he was unable to grasp what he was trying to tell him. You can never really understand until it happens. This was just going to have to be a life lesson for his crewmates, something they would have to undergo for themselves. Before getting into the helmets for the pre-breathing session, the astronauts joked about how empty their pockets felt because of the reaction that had followed the Apollo 15 stamp scandal. They could carry no more than a dozen items of a personal nature and absolutely nothing to indicate they might make any money off of this flight. That meant they had to disappoint many friends and relatives who wanted them to take along some harmless trinket. After suiting up and breathing pure oxygen for the allotted time, they waddled outside, and Barbara and Tracy were waiting beside the stairs so Jean could get one last hug. But their presence 
once again reminded him of the threat of terrorism, the possibility that someone might try to shoot the Saturn full of holes didn't concern him because Gene knew Charlie's people were all over the place. But the safety of his family had bothered him from the first day he learned of the danger, and he constantly wrestled with the possibility of them being threatened while he was on the moon, a quarter million miles away. Nightmare scenarios had plagued him for weeks, what would he do if his daughter was taken by terrorists who had then demanded he denounce his country while the whole world watched? He just didn't know. And you walk down and go on into a car and then you drive about 10 miles and then you go on up to the bottom of this rocket. The astronauts got their first glimpse of the gathered throng as their special van made the drive from the crew quarters to the pad. But with the big fishbowl of a helmet on, they could hear nothing but the steady hiss of oxygen from their life support system. But they could see people cheering. It was like a chorus of unheard voices. Bright lights dappled the nightscape as they drove through the darkness, following the familiar road past the vehicle assembly building, past the press site, and along the very track that had ferried the Saturn V to the pad. A spotlight beam from a helicopter hovering above improved their driver's vision, because it just wouldn't do to run over a spectator at this stage of the game. Far away, faint fingers of lightning snapped in the sky. The routine of getting to the pad, something they knew so well, had assumed an almost religious quality for hundreds of thousands of people this time, and Jean was moved by the palpable sense of emotion surrounding them, the last ride of Apollo. By the time they reached the elevator, Cernan felt absolutely charmed and was grinning from ear to ear. His Saturn V sparkled like a 363-foot-high jewel rampant against the night sky, center stage, and draped in spotlights. You look up in the air, and that's the beginning of the old heart starts pity patting just a little bit, you know. <laughs> but then you get in the elevator, and you go all the way up to the top of this uh, big old rocket, and it's as tall as a 36-story building. Still not on a rocket. And then... The elevator rose slowly up the side of the Saturn, and the American flag painted on her flank passed before their faces and disappeared beneath their toes. Then the black letters United States slid by, one by one, bottom to top. Every inch of the rocket was covered in lights and frosty bergs of boiling ice peeled from her skin. Gene could hear nothing through his helmet, nor could he talk to anyone but himself, so there was no way to share the isolated wonder that he felt at that moment. This wasn't Apollo 10 deja vu, but an entirely new sensation, amplified by the darkness, with puddles of lights stretching away far below in every direction, even to the east, out in the Atlantic, where boatloads of spectators bobbed and waited. By the time the elevator came to a jerking, shaking halt at the top, 
It was as if you could see all the way to Miami. You have to walk from this uh, gantry uh, type of thing to go on out, uh, the gantry, uh, uh, the thing that holds the rocket up out there, you know. And, and, and then you walk on this thing, it's just a little bitty arm. Crossing that open, narrow walkway on the access arm from the elevator to the white room for Gene was the longest 20 feet of the mission. He was alone in a crowd, wrapped in enforced silence so dense he heard his own heartbeat. He looked down into a boiling, writhing length of confusion that fell away to unimaginable depths beneath his feet and prayed the steel mesh would support his weight because it all seemed so thin and frail. Tendrils of mist oozed through the tiny open spaces, clawing at his boots. Step carefully, quickly, the technicians await, but one was missing. Gunter was not there as the pad crew Führer, having been promoted away to more important duties, and Jean missed him. It was a break with tradition, and somewhat unsteadying, who would tap his helmet and wish him Godspeed? The new guy was perfectly capable, but without Gunter, something seemed out of balance. The crew stuffed themselves into the spacecraft, buckled up, attached the O2 hoses and cables, and the radio comes alive in their ears. The hatch is closed and the white room folds away. They are alone. They are really going to do it. Nerves calm as training clicks in, and Gene could not help but smile as he started the pre-flight checklist. The next few hours flew past. And then you go on out and you get inside of the spacecraft, and then they do a few checkouts and a few things like that, and then they close the hatch, and then you have a chance to kind of sit there and start thinking. Here I am on top of a rocket, that's as tall as a 36-story building. And down inside that rocket, there is four and a half million pounds of liquid hydrogen, liquid oxygen, and kerosene. <laughs> Are you scared? <laughs> I'll tell you what, if your heart doesn't go pity-pat, pity-pat, just a little bit faster than normal, you don't understand the potential problem. <laughs> At T minus 50 minutes, the launch control center initiated the power transfer test, switching the vehicle momentarily onto its own battery power and then restoring external power. Some five minutes later, swing arm nine, the access arm to the spacecraft, retracted 12 degrees to a standby position. This is Apollo Saturn Launch Control, T-minus 50 minutes, 55 seconds, and counting. Preparations are underway in the Launch Control Center at this time for a critical power transfer test. The space vehicle at this time is being fed from an external power source, but shortly before liftoff, it will be transferred to the internal flight batteries. This test is to ensure that all electrical systems aboard the vehicle function properly on the internal flight batteries. The test takes about five minutes, during which time the various elements of the launch team monitor their systems and report in then to the test supervisor, Bill Schick, here in the control room, that everything looks good during the test. 
Depending on local weather conditions in various areas around the United States, the flight of Apollo 17 will be monitored or be able to be seen by people as far as 500 miles away. This is the flight uh, as seen of the first stage of powered flight. This would include a large portion of the southeastern United States, northern tip of Cuba, and the Bahama Islands. The power transfer test now underway. First stage, second stage, third stage, instrument unit now all going to internal power. Countdown continu continuing to go well. T-minus 49 minutes, 35 seconds and counting. This is Kennedy Test Control. This is Apollo Saturn Launch Control. T-minus 15 minutes, 52 seconds and counting. The Vice President of the United States, Spiro Agnew, has entered the Launch Control Center now. He'll observe the final portions of the countdown from here and also the launch. Arming and checking of the service module reaction control system has now been completed and in progress is the chill down of the S2 or second stage start tanks. Checkouts continuing to go well, some running a little bit ahead of schedule, uh, all on time. T-minus 15 minutes, 20 seconds and counting. This is Kennedy test control. T-minus 3 minutes, 40 seconds. The countdown continuing to go along smoothly. Once we go on the terminal countdown sequencer, the count will be automatic from there on out. The countdown sequencer will initiate the various functions from that time on. However, the men here in the firing room will be monitoring their consoles, watching temperatures, pressures, various readouts. They could override that terminal sequencer if necessary. Moving up now to the time when we'll go on that terminal sequencer, T-minus 3 minutes, 10 seconds, and counting. Spacecraft ready light has come on, indicating that the spacecraft is ready. We are now on the terminal sequencer. Launch sequence has started. Flowing of that water on the pad will begin at the one-minute mark. Flowing on the flame deflector below the launch vehicle, on the launch pedestal itself, and along the swing arms, which will be coming back at liftoff. Instrument unit ready light has come on. Emergency detection system ready light is on. All indications are we are go for launch as we approach the two minute, 30 second mark. Pressurization of the various uh, propellant tanks now aboard the space vehicle is starting. S2 or second stage liquid oxygen tanks now pressurized. These propellant tanks are pressurized with helium to ensure that during the flight the uh, fuel flows properly down through the engines. It's quiet here in the firing room now as the men are monitoring their consoles, looking at the temperatures, uh, checking pressures, and a variety of parameters to ensure everything is in a go condition. Two minutes and counting and a hush settled over the eastern edge of Florida. Gene looked at the clock on the instrument panel and pushed his shoulders and body deep into the canvas couch. He was in the commander's left seat, Ron was in the middle position of the command module pilot, and Dr. Rock, the lunar module pilot, was on the right. An aerodynamic shroud covered the spacecraft during liftoff, and of the five windows available, only one was uncovered, and it was just above Gene's face. There was nothing to see but some light reflecting off the low haze. They were right on time for the scheduled 9.53 p.m. liftoff, and control had shifted to the electronic hands of the automatic sequencing computer. 
Gene scanned the dials one last time. Everything was in the green. Time to go. Pressurization continuing on the fuel tanks at this time. We'll go to the critical power transfer at the T-minus 50-second mark in the countdown. At that time, we'll transfer external power source to the flight batteries aboard the space vehicle. The final action by the crew aboard the spacecraft America will be a final guidance alignment. This conducted by the spacecraft commander, Gene Cernan. The flight of Apollo 17 will be able to be seen depending on weather conditions some 500 miles away as it uh, goes into Earth orbit. Pressurization continuing. Liquid hydrogen tanks now aboard the second stage have been pressurized. All propellants aboard the second stage now pressurized. A cover aboard the cue ball. This is the cue ball system on top of the uh, Launch escape system will be pulled off just shortly before launch. First stage propellant tanks have been pressurized. Now past the one minute mark and we are going on internal power. Now all systems to internal power. We'll be looking for the engine start sequence at the 8.9 second mark in the countdown. The engines will build up to a thrust of 7.6 million pounds. T-minus 30 seconds. We have a cutoff. We have a cutoff at T-minus 30 seconds. We're standing by at T-minus 30 second mark. We'll bring word to you uh, just as soon as we get it. We have a cutoff at T-minus 30 seconds. T-minus 30 seconds and holding. This is Kennedy Launch Control. But wait, a hiccup. A launch computer failed to give the command for a third stage oxygen tank to pressurize and controllers sent a manual override command. One minute and counting came the words through crew helmets. At 30 seconds, Gene took a deep breath and held on, white-knuckled tight. Something was happening, but he didn't know exactly what, and the business-like voices from launch control reeked with disappointment. Are we going? The hiccup grew to a glitch as the automatic sequencer refused the manual command and without warning, the whole show shut down in a heartbeat. The only last moment halt in Apollo history. A computer had decided that they weren't going anywhere. We have a cutoff, announced a stunned launch control official. Hundreds of thousands of people along the Atlantic coast let out their breath with a single exhalation, as if the night were deflating like a torn beach ball. Gene was very aware of the trouble his mouth had caused during the Apollo 10 lunar landing test. So he shouted a silent profanity, only to himself. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host. I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 372 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 17 Glitches. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. 
First, a very important announcement. Thanks to my web host, GoDaddy, who I'm not happy with at all, I had to change my email address. Please update your records. If you need to contact me, use the address spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Our next episode will be posted in a couple weeks, hopefully by September 30th. If you would like to be notified by email when new episodes are posted, you can subscribe to the blog by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and typing in your email on the form. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 195 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. Today, we celebrate our Moon Emoji donors. These donors have supported the podcast for three consecutive years and receive a Moon Emoji next to their name on the donor's page. Okay, for some afterthoughts. Well, that abort was a bit anticlimactic. Sorry, I don't make it up, I just present what happens. But my intention in building it up that way was so the listener would feel some of the frustration (laughs) that the crew and everyone else did at that particular moment in December of 1972. I thought Gene's book had a very beautifully descriptive narrative of launch day. So I included it nearly word for word. I hope you enjoyed that. I mentioned that Cernan had two mission disqualifying problems during the final weeks before launch. The first was a prostate infection. Now, normally a flight surgeon would report this immediately. But Cernan had a friend in Chuck Lapinta who kept it quiet and treated it himself. The treatment was an embarrassing and unpleasant experience, as you can imagine. That is why Cernan's behind was sore when getting into the spacesuit. The second was an injury he received during a softball game when he tried to stretch a double into a triple. He heard something snap in his leg as he rounded second base. He wrote that it felt like a machete had chopped deep into his lower calf, and he hit the dirt with a roll and scream of agony. Now Gene had promised to himself he would never do anything so dumb after he flew his helicopter into the water in 1971. But here, he did it again. To make matters worse, there was no good way to hide this injury since he had to use crutches. Deke came close to switching in, that's Deke Slayton, came close to switching in Dick Gordon for Apollo 17. But once again, Chuck, the flight surgeon, treated Gene and minimized the injury report when Deke inquired. Now, if Gene would not have healed up, that could have cost the flight surgeon his job. That's why Gene's leg was hurting when he put on the suit. So, in case you were confused about that, I hope that clears it up. What did you think about Gene advising Ron and Jack to enjoy the launch experience to the max 
because it wasn't going to happen again. Isn't that some good advice? And he did that because Stafford gave him the same advice about the Jiminy re-entry. You know, there were, there were many times in my life that I have wished someone had told me the same thing about an experience I was going to have. Now, for those of you interested in the farm progress, there has been some progress this time. The Masons have built the basement block walls and completed the brickwork on the basement part of the house. There's still some more brickwork to do, but that'll come later. So we do have a structure that actually resembles the bottom half of a house now. Of course, there is still a dirt floor. But it's only been three months since they started. <laughs> okay, let's move on. Over the past fortnight, we had, I think, seven contributions and some increases on Patreon. I would like to thank Lauren H. from Plano, Texas, who donated at the Apollo level and earned a rocket emoji. Michael L. from Washington donated at the Gemini level. Dirk H. from New Zealand donated at the Soyuz level and earned a galaxy emoji. Bill and Kathy S. donated at the Mercury level. Martin T. pledged on Patreon at the shuttle level. The big new M. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Apollo level. And Stephen C. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. Our total Patreon donors have reached 249. And our total donors overall for 2021 have reached 381 with a goal of reaching 500 by the end of the year. As usual, this time of year, the dog days of summer are our time of weakest support. In August, there was a 25% drop in funding and that was coupled with July's 35%. So uh, it was a little bit discouraging, but I know we're going through the uh, plague again here. That doesn't seem to want to end, so I can understand. But if you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruptions and can't afford it, please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Now, here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, friends. The winner of the SRH drawing will get the choice of a Space Rocket History Magnet or the SRH Archive Magnet or two stickers or two static clings or two holographic stickers or a genuine NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Joe Pastrick. Joe Pastorek, if you would email us, spacerockethistory at gmail.com, tell us your address and your SRH prize preference, we'll get this out to you. My apologies if I mispronounced your name. Sincere thanks to all 381 of you who contributed thus far in 2021. My sources for this episode were NASA, ABC News, the Apollo 17 Press Kit, The Last Man on the Moon by Gene Cernan, Apollo 17 Flight Journal, the Internet Archive, Flickr, and Wikipedia. And that's all we have for this episode. I'll try to have episode 373 posted by September 30th. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now. <laughs>